residential on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third alarm? This is the working part. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the Alpha side. Welcome to another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Today, I got my good friends on the show. I got Dr. Chuck Allen from Colorado, and I got my friend Brad from Surrey, British Columbia. And we're going to talk about the stigma, resiliency, coping mechanisms. Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing great today, Steve. Thanks for having me on the show. Dr. Chuck, what's the weather like down there in uh, Centennial, Colorado? Well, there's not a cloud in the sky, and it's nice and warm. It's after our four or five, six inches of snow yesterday. And I always have a different perspective when uh, you and I do a show. And I think one of the things we all battle is we remunerate back to the past, the losses, the mistakes we made. And I do it myself. And I think it's, it takes practice to have, you know, self-positive regard for yourself. It takes practice Absolutely. to do that. Our, our, our society is dysfunctional and it trains people to have conditional love for themselves or conditional love for everybody. And, and, and it's getting worse. We're, we're into what I call the blame game. You make me angry. You make me happy. And we look to other people to make us feel good or bad. It's not possible for anybody to make anybody feel good or bad. The pain is created by thinking. The easiest way to understand this is if you have anxiety, it means you're time traveling into the future. The definition of anxiety is the anticipation of being hurt. Simple as that. If you have depression, you're time traveling into the past and dealing with the past. But when you're in the now, is they bring a person into the moment, into the now, and they stop time traveling for a period of time. There's two kinds of depression, endogenous and, and exogenous. Depression that it's a reaction to something that is outside of you, okay, versus a depression that's created by a chemical imbalance within you. And antidepressants work great for the chemical imbalances of the body, whereas they don't touch at all. They don't have any impact on psychological reactions. So if, if, it's, if it's a reaction to a suicide, then it, antidepressants aren't gonna do anything. Everybody talks about the stigma that's attached to mental health. And firefighters, I'm sure, and I I'm, I'm, I'm imagine most people, they don't go get help because, oh, if, if, the, um, uh, if I've got a problem, if I've got an emotional problem, there's something wrong with me. And the medical model pathologizes normal emotions. The mental health field, my, my field, um, is, is terrible. Uh, you know, you go to a psychiatrist, they're going to put you on meds because there's something wrong with you. we got to fix the emotion. And so I'm on this new kick to, um, to, to address exactly what you're talking about. We can't talk about it. We can't, we, th these are things that we've got to keep hush hush or whatever. My question is why, why do we need to stigmatize a person who's trying to cope with their emotions instead of allowing, and, and my, my, new, my new gig is to teach my patients, every patient I've got now, I teach them that their, their emotions are nothing more than a, a smoke detector going off. 
everybody needs a smoke detector. If it goes off, we, we, I've got techniques and medication goes in to turn off the smoke detector, but you can't just turn off the smoke detector and not go find the fire. Dr. Chuck, can you mm -hmm. define what stigma is? What does stigma mean? Yeah. I think that's a great thing for us to talk about. Stigma, I guess, is this notion. Here's my first reaction to it. A person does not go, for example, to talk to somebody, get some counseling, because they, in their own mind, define their emotion as a sign of weakness. If I want to cry at, a, at the loss of a child in a fire, that firefighter must be weak. There must be something wrong with you if you have to cry. The old phrase, suck it up, buttercup, sends the culture, the message, emotions are, there's, there are pathology. There's something wrong with you if you have emotions. Well, that means if emotions are defined as, as a mental illness, then everybody on the face of the earth is mentally ill. Because I don't know of anybody who doesn't have emotions. So again, there's a difference between mental illness, which I think is, is diagnosable and real, like schizophrenia, uh, you know, other, other types of psychiatric disorders are different than sadness, anxiety. Brad, I mean, you're out there supporting mental health. You know a lot of people who have taken their lives. What, what's your theory on the stigma? two things for guys like our, our heads up guys that we have the 300,000 men have done their free self check and the things that bother men the most by far are loneliness and lack of purpose by far hands down loneliness and lack of purpose our bodies change so we go through menopause okay no one talks about that our bodies change mom's not happy nobody's happy if dad's not happy there's infidelity the, the financial problems and I think that's the biggest issue the purpose part when when people are are overwhelmed by their business, by their relationships, or whatever the, the the financial issues, whatever's going on in their life, they can't figure out how to solve those issues, and they they are just completely overwhelmed by the the problem without a solution. I think that's most of the people that are in that they can't figure out how to maintain a relationship or whatever it is. They, it, it begs the question: What's the purpose? What's what is the point of life itself? Why are we here? And everybody has to ask, answer that question. Every one of us comes to a certain point at, at some age. Some, some people do it in their teens and other people do it in their 90s. I, I, I think the, the best way to start is to go inside yourself and, and, and have an honest conversation about what is it that you would like to be different? And what is your purpose? What to, to, to really try to come up with an answer to, why are you here? And, and how does that fit into your understanding of, of, of the meaning of life itself? Why is there any life on this planet or in this universe? To, to then take it to the next level where I take I like to take most people is to teach them to develop an unconditional positive regard for themselves and to distinguish who they are as a human being 
from their behavior. Their actions and their behavior in life mean nothing in terms of measuring who they are as a person. And, and the, the yardstick by which I suggest people measure their self-worth is the fact that they exist. If you occupy space in this universe, your value as a human being is no greater and no lesser than anyone else. And then you think about your actions and behaviors. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you uh, uh, the, the metaphor that I used with my kids when they were little. I, I took a quarter to my son one time and I said, you see this quarter? There's a heads on it and there's a tails on it. Heads means I love you. Tails means I hate you. And I'm going to take this quarter and I'm going to dig a hole in this desk, in this piece of wood, the depth and the size of this quarter, and I'm going to super glue this quarter in that hole, heads up. In other words, my love for you is unconditional. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. And now I want you to take a look at this nickel. Nickel means, heads means you're being good, tails means you're being naughty. And I'm going to put the nickel in your hand, and you decide whether you're going to be, a, be good and act good or act badly. And if you act badly, I'm going to punish you. And if you act good, I'm going to reward you. But it's got nothing to do with, with, with the love. You can turn that nickel tails up on top of the quarter, and the quarter's still going to be there. So you develop an unconditional love for yourself. And then you hold that same idea toward everyone else. If I value you unconditionally as human beings, then your behaviors and actions are different. They don't measure who you are as a person. That's the problem. We, we love our kids conditionally. We, we have relationships with other people based on conditions. If you act badly, then I got I to gotta hate you. That's dysfunctional, I, can, I would argue. So that's, that's kind of the metaphor that I try to get people to think about when I'm working with them in terms of their sense of value, their sense of their self-worth, their self-esteem is measured by the fact that you exist. But everybody has to come to the question of what's my purpose? Why am I here? Now, going back to a theory that I've talked about before, and that is the concept of the will to live and the will to die. I could never figure out how combat veterans could come back with no arms and no legs and be alive. And others get a single two, two, three round in the shoulder and die of shock. How do you make sense out of that? And I can give you a dozen stories of my patients that I've worked with. You scratch your head and you go, how could that possibly be? And Steve, you, 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 you and I've talked about this in terms of, of you, you, you're on this fire scene and, and you're, you're going, how could this person have survived this fire or this accident, this traffic accident? And then other people, you, they shouldn't be dead. What, what happened here? If it's the cancer patient within the fifth stage with unrelenting pain, they get to the point where they say it is finished and they release themselves. There's a study out of Yale in the, in, the, in the oncology wards where 
that they, they made this observation of, of the family around the, the patient who was in you know, terminal, in hospice level, when the family was at peace with it, and they, then that person would die at two in the afternoon with the family surrounding the bed. When the family was desperate, no, you can't die. You've got to try this other treatment. You've got to keep going. You've got to hang on. You've got to stay alive. That patient would die at two in the morning when there was no staff around. I've seen it, Chuck. I've seen that happen. My son was playing hockey in Sweden. My dad had a flu when I left Vancouver. Um, Two-day flight to Sweden. My son played a handful of games. We traveled to a place called Lexan where he was skating with the Lexan hockey team. And I got a phone call from the facility where my dad was staying. He was on a care ward. They said, Steve, your dad is very sick. You need to come back as soon as possible. And I said, how sick? And they said, we're worried he's not going to make it through the night. One of the nurses that worked there, really super lovely lady, I said, you got to do me a favor. You got to go to my dad and you got to whisper in his ear, Steve is coming, please wait. Took me two days. I had to fly to Heathrow. We had to take a bus. Finally made it home two days later. They'd had a cot all set up for my dad had not regained consciousness. And I fell asleep. And I woke up probably about four hours later. And I was just looking at my dad breathing in his bed. And he sat up with his eyes open. And I went, hey, dad. And he looked at me and fell back into the bed. And he passed away. That's exactly my point. He, he said, and now it is finished. Now, let's take it another step to the suicides that survive. The guy that's standing on the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, standing there and absolutely determined he's going to die, wants to die, willing to die. And he jumps. And after he jumps, he changes his mind and he survives. Therapist, whoever's working with him, should put it in terms of you chose not to die you chose to survive rather than you're a failure because you couldn't even kill yourself you know and i've and i've seen that before and i can't even kill myself and so they feel like a failure mm, there's something deeper inside of us i think that that uh that spiritual piece of us that uh makes a choice when my friend took his life uh i, I was fine like it was, i was in shock it wasn't a fire but i was in shock and then three months straight right around christmas my wife took our guys down golfing in California. We own a golf course in DC and she took the staff down golfing and I'm here. And I was in a dark, 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 dark place. I was going to actually drive to the psych ward. It was bad. Like I'm a happy guy. I've got a lot on the go, but I was in Vancouver and I'm driving over Alex Fraser bridge. I was fine. Beautiful day. Like today's sunny. It was a beautiful day. I'm start driving over the bridge and all I wanted to do was jump. It just came out of the blue and I was scared driving up that bridge. Like I wanted to get out and jump. So then I got over the overpass, pull off. I have a psychologist, my own psychologist, one of my best friends now. I phoned him and I says, Pete, I said, do I need to go to the psych ward? And he says, no, Brad, you just got way, way too much in your mind. You've got to slow down. You know, I've probably gone over bridges two or 300 times since then or more. And I've tried to make myself feel that way. I never could. Like that was weird. Well, that just came out of, out of the blue. So I think there's suicides out there that are like just, Spur of the moment, too, for no reason. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Impulsive. You illustrated it very well. Bipolar, for example, when I talk to my patients with that diagnosis, I say, look, bipolar is a chemical imbalance. You need to find the right medication to get your system in balance. That's really easy to fix. It's not a mental illness, is my point. 
the person's not crazy. They have a mood swings that are, you can change those chemically. That's where, that's where the medicine comes in. You're right. The highs and the lows, you got to be so careful. That's where you, when you crash, you crash. That's why you got to not think about it as a mental illness, but it's just a chemical imbalance. It's like, you know, you, you take insulin to deal with diabetes, but insulin doesn't cure diabetes. There is no cure for the diabetes. It can, there's no, we don't have the technology to take care to do that. Maybe Chuck, someday. If somebody is really low, Chuck, tell me if I'm wrong here, but there's chemical, there's situational, and there's environmental issues that could cause you to be unstable, could cause you to feel like you want to take your own life. And those three things, environmental, chemical, and situational, would you say those are valid factors in people who are depressed, maybe suicidal? One of the things you left out is spiritual. The, the situational one. So there's a philosopher from the first century BC called Epictetus who says, People are disturbed not by things, but by the way they think of them. Shakespeare changed it a little. Things are neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. So one of the issues that I, you know, we're mind, body, and soul. The medical model misses the spiritual part of a person. They don't address that. They don't deal with that. Again, working with veterans, when I started to get them to go in and not, not to not to teach them or tell them anything about me or, or my philosophy, but I would go in and I would get them to explore their own spiritual ideas. And what is your, what is your spiritual philosophy? And once I introduced that piece to them and they started to explore it, a lot of their PTSD went away or lessened greatly because they were able to get their head around it in such a way that they could make it make sense. And that's what, that's what trauma is. Your, your situational issue that traumatized you was a way that you couldn't get your head around it. You could not make it make sense. But if you put it in a spiritual perspective, it might have been able to make more sense quicker. There's only one kind of medicine that will cure you of anything, and that's an antibiotic. Okay, you take it, and it'll kill the, the bug. All other medication manages symptoms. Okay. There's only one kind of doctor that will cure you. You go to the doctor with a problem and you leave without it, a surgeon. So all other doctors do is manage symptoms. It's an issue of, of again, you, you have a smoke alarm, it goes off. And once it goes off, if there was a switch on it, it you go up and you flip the switch and turn it off. But then you go look for the fire. Okay, and that's what the that's what psychiatry doesn't do, or GPs that give you know medications to modify the symptoms, but you've got to go find out why you've got the symptoms, and that's where the therapy comes in. The medical profession tends to do is get you on an SSRI as soon as possible to numb out that that's smoke right. alarm, and that's then right. you that's feel right. better over you know, five to six weeks, you don't actually deal with the issue. Exactly. Exactly. They knock the smoke detector off the wall and then they go back to business and they don't address the therapy. And the research is way clear on that. Research on the antidepressants is very clear that you cannot just do the meds. You've got to do therapy in, in addition to the meds. You've got to have somebody to go in and help you find out 
why you got depressed. I can say with a lot of firefighters, their GP will hand out an antidepressant. They won't suggest clinical counseling. And that's the most frustrating part. I actually support a lot of people to go on medication and put it into remission, but they don't believe they have to go for clinical counseling because they feel that that will really expose them as being weak, but they have no that, problem going on the SSRI. There's the stigma. There's no stigma to taking the, the, the antidepressant, but there is a stigma if you're getting counseling because you must be weak. There must be something wrong with your mind. And, and that's just not with firefighters, but that's their, our whole culture deals with that. You know, I talk about crushing the stigma, but I also tell people the stigma isn't going away, especially in policing and fire, probably the military, because that's what it is. It's a stigma. If we expose that it's there and deal with it, we can make changes. We can make it a better place. We can help people. The study out of the IAAF in 2018 showed that, you know, 80% of firefighters said, if I told a coworker or a peer, a manager, that I wasn't feeling good, that I was struggling, I would be looked at as weak and unfit for duty. And I think it's higher than 80%. So that stigma is never going to go to zero. Why do we have it in the first place? Why can't we destroy the stigma? Why, why can't we get a person to say, you know what, there's no, why isn't there a stigma if you, if you uh, break your arm? There's, there's no stigma to go get a cast on your arm. Why is there one to go get some counseling to, to help you manage your emotions? I think it has a lot to do with the kind of job. Like if you're a policeman, eh, Steve? You can't say anything. You're going to lose your badge. You know, if you're in the armed forces, you can't say anything. You're going to get fired. You lose your security clearance. That's right. If you're a police officer, you'll get a desk job, which is worse than death to a police officer that loves being on patrol. Like there is punishment that comes with reaching for help. That's part of the stigma. And, okay, okay. Right? So that could be fixed, couldn't it? You give every police officer in the world, I was going to say in North America, but get every police officer in the world the ability to pull their car over and say, I'm not feeling good today. I need to have an hour right now. They make a call to a counselor that they trust in their car on duty. They get talked through their day. And they go back and they're fit for duty. Because what the biggest problem with this whole scenario is, we have people that are taking a knee, but we have so many people that are out there doing their jobs every day and they're just getting through it. But they're going to retire broken, unhappy because they were able to do their jobs. And because they never took a knee, they're not helped. That's what the problem is in this whole system is that. How do we fix that? You know, the military is doing a pretty good job at it where they are really pushing and they're, they're recognizing that the mental health is not a stigma. It's if they get on too big of meds. I had one guy that was a security guard, armed security for um, a nuclear plant here in Colorado. And he said, if, if they find out I'm on an antidepressant, I'll lose my security clearance. I'll lose my job. To me, that can be changed. I mean, they, they, we, we could get a legislation that's illegal to discriminate up, up against someone if, if they're getting help. If you put that police officer on the desk because he's getting counseling, the chief gets fired. Okay, Chuck, you're my friend. Do I get to tell you what I really think? <laughs> yeah. 
I don't think you could fix it. Here's why. Uh, I think, you know, you got business people like Brad, they're talking about they've had a thought driving over a bridge. I think that helps people who've been driving over bridges going, oh my God, why do I want to stop the car and jump out? They listen to a guy like Brad and they say, hey, if that dude has those feelings, maybe there's not something wrong with me. Maybe I just need to reach out to that heads up guys. And in my case, there lots of people have challenged me. I don't know if we can fix it because there are people in policing, fire, the military, Chuck, I'll go back to my first 10 years. I learned early. I learned to drink fast. I learned to look at people who were struggling as weak until I had my own issues. Then right. I became the anti-smoker. But not everybody goes through that phase. Ever since I've known you, your whole idea of doing these podcasts is to defeat the stigma. You have been mental health advocate. That's helping to defeat it. One of the one of the other problems that would have to be overcome is the medical model. In order for the insurance to pay, the therapist must pathologize the symptoms. The minute you pathologize it, you've put the stigma on it. That's where disorder versus injury. Yeah, that's right. Our system set up to help someone with PTSD, someone who's being disordered, not somebody who's has a mental health injury. That's right. And there's no diagnosis, no ICD-9 code or 10 now that, that says you have an injury versus, versus a disorder. In our society, if we could change this somehow from the word mental health, like mental to brain health, I think people think a lot different. I like it's that. that word mental. That's a terrible That's right. word, man. That's a terrible word. That's right. You know, like Dr. Chuck said, most people aren't, most people are depressed or whatever. That's not, they don't have a, it's not psychotic. So why do we right. use the word mental? We turn back the clock, maybe 50 years, 60 years. People were in the backwards of, of mental hospitals because they were having spiritual issues rather than mental issues. Okay. That they, that's, that was the main issue. They were tipped over for their spirituality, which, which is, goes back to the main question that we asked earlier. Why are we here? You know, that's a spiritual question. What's the purpose of your life? Probably the best example that I give to people to help them understand that maybe they're having the same issue is something that I, I, I had, I was working uh, at, at, a, at a VA hospital and, and there was a, a, a technician there and he and I were talking one day and he said, you know, I'm allergic to peaches and I got a hold of some peaches in, in the cafeteria one day at lunch and didn't realize it. So I was having an anaphylactic reaction. So I was in the emergency room and they were putting tubes down my throat. And he said, I flatlined and I felt myself and I saw myself lifting up out of my body, above my body. I could see them working on me. I could hear them talking, but I was just in this incredible, peaceful, it was unbelievably peaceful. It was just this most wonderful experience. And as I was going up out higher and higher, my son's name popped in my head, his first name. Boom, I was back in my body, looking up there. They, they were saying, he's back, he's back. He, he said, I, I realize now, looking back on it, that um, I, had, I had some purpose in life. I still had to raise my three-year-old. And so I, I had a purpose to come back. And he said, I know what it's like. And I had reason to stay. And, and I think that's what we all do. It's like your dad. He said, I have reason to stay until you walked in the room. You know, you said something there, and it relates to the fire service. 
a hundred years of tradition unimpeded by progress. That's the problem. The problem is we've been doing this for so long. When you're a police officer or a firefighter or a paramedic or a special forces dude, gal, you're all that in a bucket of chicken. That uniform, that status for over a hundred years has been strong. And there isn't a lot of room for weakness. There isn't a lot of room. It's just starting. Okay, you know what? I'm going to apologize. Maybe I, maybe it can be fixed. It's just going to take a long time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm talking from a point of frustration because, you know, I got friends like Brad here who are out there making a difference all the time, helping people he doesn't even know. You're out there helping first responders. And I think what's happening in the world that was starting to take shape. But I hear this all the time now, and it started in the last two years. I am so sick and tired of hearing about mental health. I'm so sick and tired of people claiming PTSD. So now we're starting to get a backlash. and That's going to work against trying to break down that stigma. You're right. I think you're right. Another reason why you policemen and firemen can't show weakness, because then you're, you're worried the fellow guy you're working with He's going to be, oh, this guy can't do his job. This guy can't do his job. Well, we got to be, and they're all talking about it, especially the fire hall. Well, we got to be careful, Emmy. Is he going to have my back in that firefight, right? Exactly. 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 Half the guys at the fire hall are all depressed too. You know, they just don't talk about it. I've had a number of patients. They're, They're in a firefight, in combat, in a firefight, and they wet the pants and it, and it really traumatizes them because John Wayne never pissed his pants in a combat. So kids go into the military with this John Wayne kind of Hollywood images and they get in there and it ain't nothing like that. Combat's a real deal where that they, they have a, a, a shock. You know, they're, they're traumatized by the reality of what combat's like and they can't get their head around that. Chuck, I've never once felt like I was going to die going to work. Never once. And then 9-11 happened and a couple hundred over five weeks flew to New York on shifts and we got there. And my first night there, I'll never forget it. It was after midnight. They took us down to ground zero. We walked for like two blocks, knee high soot. And we're walking down there and we walk by a shop to the right that's been converted to a morgue. And there's a pile the 10 feet high of squashed air packs and then pile 10 feet high of turnout gear. And we walk down and there's lights and excavators and somebody whistling and somebody yells thanks for coming boys and we're all in our dress tunic and we're down there in the hole and we're watching these fdny guys dig out their buddies with their hands what the fuck is actually happening here like i could not get my head it was surreal it was like a movie somebody said to me just recently that i was speaking in a school and we talked about 9 11 and some people really don't even know what that was And I don't know if people that have been exposed to 9-11, I don't even know if I've decompressed 9-11. It's interesting, Bessel van der Kolk, he did a study, 225 people, and all these people that ran from the building, somehow they found them, did a study in Harvard, and they found out they had no clinical counseling, no psychology, but they used acupuncture, meditation, massage, EMDR. They had no PTSD symptoms whatsoever. What's interesting about thinking about dying on the job and actually not realizing you could die on the job are two different things, aren't they? My point to that is there are people that are so traumatized, but somehow have been able 
to deal with that, like Brad said, without drugs or, or medication, they just somehow be able to make it through their life because they know what the right techniques for them are. It's, it's almost like understanding your own factory settings is the best way to survive. I'm going to say it, Brad, brain health, good brain health. Take what you just said and put it through a spiritual filter, a lens of spirituality, your spirituality. For the first time in your career, as you were walking knee high in that soot, you got in touch with your own mortality on the job, whereas it never crossed your mind prior to that. I'll share my personal experience. Since 1969, I was a Marine in Vietnam. And for two weeks, I knew I could dodge rockets and bullets. There's no way I was going to get killed. So my hypervigilance was so high that I didn't sleep for the first two weeks. I was looking at, looking up over Highway 1, and I said, you know, I'm 13,000 miles from home, and I don't want to die in this damn place. I don't want to die here, but if I should die here, then so be it. And this incredible relief came over me, just incredible lift of that weight of fear was gone. I didn't realize it at the time, but what I did that day, it took me a few years to put it all together, but if that day I made peace with my own death, with my own mortality. I made peace with it and accepted it as a, okay, I don't want to, but this could happen. And, I, and if it is, then, then, then that's my time. It's a psychological, spiritual issue that I made, that I, I dealt with at that moment. Everybody, I think, comes to that. We all get to that point. And, and, and it was, again, later, after years and years later, working with veterans, not being able to make sense out of how you could come back with no arms and no legs and be blown away and all of that stuff. How do you make sense of that? Well, it, it, it comes back down to that will to live. Well, Dr. Chuck, I always feel different after I listen to you talk. Like I, I, uh, I'm always humbled and I always have a different perspective. Once again, thank you so much for being on the show, Brad. Thanks for being on the show, man. Dr. Chuck, that quarter thing was amazing, man. That makes so much sense in life. It just makes so much sense. I, I think so too. I, I just, I, I just think if people can get their head around that concept, that metaphor itself, they can start to sort out their actions and their behaviors from their, their sense of self-worth. So I want to thank you both for being on the show. It was really good. Brad, take care of yourself. Dr. Chuck, thanks so much for everything. Thanks, Dan. It's my pleasure. I, I'm just honored that I could be here. That wraps up another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Thanks so much for listening and helping us make a difference when it comes to brain health. Take care. Thank you.